Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. This is the third of a three-part series on successful municipalities in Atlantic Canada. We talked with the mayor of Halifax two weeks ago. We talked with a former mayor of Charlottetown last week. And this week, we talked with Mayor Don Arnold from the city of Moncton and the city manager, Mark Landry. So, Don, what's your impression of the city of Moncton? City of Moncton uh, it was one of my um, models for the work that I did, uh, David, for the city of uh, St. John uh, when they asked for input into economic growth strategies for the city. I thought that uh, the city has some best practices that were worth sharing uh, with the city of St. John. And in fact, any community uh, can learn from what uh, some of the things that are going on in Moncton. Uh, so for an example, uh, one of the key um, keys to the success of economic development for any community is having a, a master plan uh, for the community. And uh, the city of uh, Moncton has probably the best master plan uh, that I've seen, um, at least comparing it to the other uh, two cities in, that we've been referencing, Halifax and Charlottetown. The, things that, the thing that distinguishes the plan for Moncton, in my view, is that whereas they all have good plans in terms of, you know, the policies that are needed and what their, um, you know, uh, aspirations are for uh, the community, particularly the urban cores in each of those cities, uh, Moncton has a, a, an additional uh, sort of element that I thought was really interesting. I, I would call it inspirational because what they did is they, they provided sort of concept models of what uh, segments of the city could look like in the future. And I, maybe it's because I'm a visual p person, I'm not sure, but it, it really just really struck me that they presented their plan uh, in a way that was very compelling. And, and for people interested in investing in a city like Moncton, it would, it would raise the level of curiosity and interest in the city to a different degree than either uh, Halifax or uh, Charlottetown. So I thought that that was one of the uh, one of the most interesting um, best practices. I think that other communities need to share, and and that document, by the way, is publicly available. So anybody wanting to copycat the approach of Moncton, it's there for the taking. So it's you know you don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of how you plan for the future success of your community. Yeah, and I think the cities had pretty good bureaucratic leadership over the years. Al Strang was here for a number of years during the transition. And then Jacques Dubay came. And of course, he was he was raided and now is the city manager in Halifax. And I think Mark Landry, who's only been here four years, came from a smaller community just outside of Edmonton and, and uh, seems to have, uh, you know, uh, really had a vision and cast that vision for the city. So um, I think part of it is good, good sort of bureaucratic leadership, along with I think Mayor Arnold has done a good job as well, and, and some of her predecessors as well. So, you know, there's a lot to work with here. Moncton has a good geographic position. There's a number of other assets. But I think uh, you can put some of the blame for success on City Hall, as you said, good planning, and I would argue good leadership as well. I, I would also add that, I, you know, I, I, I think they have a pretty uh, impressive economic development department. Um, and uh, I talked to um, uh, Kevin, uh, who is uh, managing that for them, and uh, he told me a really interesting strategy that they had in terms of looking at their urban core. Uh, what they did is they did an inventory of all the uh, properties within that core, and they uh, sort of rated them in terms of whether or not they were uh, being used for the best uh, use. And, um, and then they, uh, the second part of what they did is they went out and they talked to every property owner within the urban core to try to determine what their um, interests were going forward. Were they a buyer or a seller? Were they looking for partners to develop? All those sort of things. And then the third thing that they did is they brought people together in a networking situation to try to build um, you know, partnerships of people who may be interested in developing properties that pe people had. And I, I just thought that that was a really uh, very good approach that almost any community could uh, could uh, replicate for sure. Uh, the other thing that is interesting, I think, is that they actually had a tangible goal that they're trying to achieve with that work. They wanted to increase uh, 
the assessment base in the Urban Core, I, I may have this number wrong, but it's in the ballpark. I think it was over slightly over $100 million by, I think, 2025 sticks in my mind. Uh, when I was talking to Mark Landre um, uh, for my project with the city of St. John, he indicated that they believe that they would uh, exceed that goal about a year in advance or so. So, you know, what does $100 million of new assessment mean? It means resources to pay for other things. And uh, it's good to have a metric like that, I think, as part of your economic development uh, strategy. Absolutely. I'm doing some work in another downtown in Ontario right now. And one of the challenges is that the downtown tends to be a relatively small share of population. So if you look at Halifax, I think there's under 20,000 in the downtown, depending on how you define it, even though there's 400,000 in the whole community. I think here in New Brunswick, or here in Moncton, it's around six or 7,000. So my point is it, you have to find a way to get strong political support on council because most of the councillors aren't particularly interested in downtown from a voter perspective. Now, what I found out today, which was very interesting, is that almost all of the councillors somehow touch downtown because you have at-large councillors and then the way that the ridings are kind of divvied up or the wards or whatever they're called, everybody kind of touches downtown with the exception of one or two. So that's very interesting to me because that gives you stronger political support. And I don't know the situation in Halifax but if you've got a bunch of councillors on the periphery of the downtown that aren't, you know, they're not going to get voted in or out based on downtown, it can be problematic. Yeah, that's right. Um, but, I th you know, I think it's clear that, um, and we've talked about this uh, in the previous two segments on successful cities, uh, that uh, if you don't densify the population living in your, in your urban core, you're not going to be as successful as you need to be. And uh, there are a lot of new... Um, developments happening in the downtown core of Moncton, also in Dieppe, to be clear. Uh, uh, so um, that brings economic activity to what used to be a very quiet area at night, as you know, you live there. And now, you know, there's people on the streets kind of day and night. There's a lot more activity. More businesses are being successful because there's more people living in the neighborhoods. Uh, and that is a that's another secret, I think, to successful communities is make sure their core is uh, populated with more people and provides uh, a destination uh, for people living within the community and from outside. Yeah, I think that's one of the stark differences, though, with Halifax. I was in Halifax last weekend and you just see thousands of young people swelling in the downtown because they're close enough to walk. They live within proximity to downtown because so many of the universities are close to downtown or uptown, whatever it's called in Halifax. And we don't have that here. I mean, there's been talk of trying to put downtown campuses. I'm doing work in London right now. And, and one of the big colleges put a campus right in the heart of downtown. We have none of that in the downtown Moncton. And I think that might be, should be something looked at in the future, trying to find a way to get students actually physically in the downtown. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. <clears throat> and uh, if you look at what's going on in Sydney, uh, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, they're putting a brand new uh, community uh, college campus right in the downtown core. Uh, that's going to be uh, a driver for other development, residential development to support it, for instance, and uh, services and, uh, and other things uh, when you have that many people sort of uh, being relocated to, to the urban core. Uh, one other thing I, I just wanted to mention, because I think I, I found it interesting, and uh, and I believe that this to be true, I, I actually said it in the report I presented to the city of St. John, is that if, if a community is on the water, whether it's the ocean or a river, like in the case of uh, Moncton, you have to take advantage of it because people are naturally drawn to water. And, uh, and I noticed that in the plan for Moncton is that they have incorporated in their long-term strategy uh, a riverfront component of their urban core uh, to make it a people place. And again, that, that's just going to attract more people to want to live in the downtown core if it's walkable to get to uh, the waterfront, basically. So um, it's another important element for any community that is, is on water is to find a way to incorporate their, their waterfront into their long-term economic development strategy. And if you visit here enough or you live here, the Chocolate River actually starts to grow on you after a while. It's actually pretty, it's a beautiful thing. You have to get used to it when you're used to, I don't know, the blue 
waters or the green waters uh, in Halifax or Fredericton? Well, uh, you know, it is a, it is a, it is an attraction, and um, and again, people just need to be near the water. So I think it's a human frailty that we all have. Um, one thing I do want to mention because I think while it's we're painting a very nice picture of, uh, of Moncton, the Greater Moncton area is suffering from uh, unnecessary uh, economic competition between each of among each of the three communities. Uh, each of them have their own economic development uh, departments, obviously, which compete against each other. They also have formed um, a collaborative economic development agency with kind of a mixed uh, mission and a lack of a responsibility called uh, 3PLUS, which I believe they're going to uh, rebrand shortly. I had a nice talk with Susie Campos about this not that long ago. And... I think that that is actually a weakness for the greater Moncton area. So if you think of what happened in, in Halifax prior to amalgamation, they agreed to have a single economic development agency that was called the Greater Halifax Partnership at the time. And it was formed before any amalgamation. And each of the communities basically dismantled their economic development agencies and put all the money and all the effort in a single entity to market the whole region and understanding that success in any part of the region was success for the whole region. I think that that's a real opportunity for, for Greater Moncton. I don't know if it will ever happen. Maybe it would happen if, if the three communities were eventually amalgamated, but I think there would be a bigger advantage if there was more collaboration and less competition, because as I mentioned, everybody wins when one, of the, one part of the community um, grows, because it, they're all so closely, um, linked ge geographically. So, I, you know, I I'd probably get in trouble for saying that out loud, but I think that that's something that uh, they that should be considered. You just mentioned the one word that's not in the dictionary in this part of the province, amalgamation. So mm -hmm. we won't we, we won't go there. You're able to do it as somebody as a bit of an outsider, uh, but that's probably not on the cards anytime soon. So without any further ado, Don, well, here's well, my... Could I just oh. mention this before sure. you do the introduction? Yep. <clears throat> When I still own uh, Corporate Research Associates, now Narrative Research, we did polling in, in, in Moncton about support for amalgamation. <clears throat> and uh, surprisingly, maybe, maybe not, the majority of people supported it. Uh, so the politicians are behind the public when it comes to amalgamating the greater Moncton area. Just wanted to throw that little it in <laughs> and i won't edit it uh, edit this segment out even though i probably should it's probably not in my interest to, <laughs> to publish this anyway don without any further ado here's my interview with uh, mayor don arnold and city manager mark landry thank you for joining us today on the insights podcast we are doing a series of interviews with the leaders of successful municipalities across atlantic canada the city of Moncton is one such municipality. Over the past five years, its population has grown by 10%, one of the faster population growth rates in Canada among larger cities. In fact, Moncton's population increased faster than Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and Winnipeg over this time frame. Over the past decade, real GDP growth in the Moncton CMA, the metropolitan area, has outpaced Halifax and was the fastest in Atlantic Canada. Your Worship, before we talk about the secret of Moncton's success, I wanted to ask you about your path to politics. What prompted you to run for council and then run for mayor in 2016? Why, thank you, David. Um, well, it, it's interesting. I've listened to some of your other podcasts and there's been a lot of uh, political ancestry and I, I am happy to say that I have none of that. I, I couldn't even tell you who my parents voted for. So I, I don't really have a political background, but um, you know, I think about it a little bit more deeply. I was always involved in, in student leadership over the years, elementary school, high school, university. In fact, I was on student council with Dominic LeBlanc many years ago at the University of Toronto. But I guess for me, the time it was 2012, and that's when I first ran as counselor at large, but I hadn't really been thinking about it. It was March break. I was with my family in LA and they went to go see the Hollywood sign. So I went back to the hotel room for some reason and CNN was on. And um, so I attribute my, my um, reason for running for Moncton City Council to Republican Senator Rick Perry. He was discussing something on CNN that I found so reprehensible that I just, I became irrationally angry. And I said, we need more 
diversity of voices around decision-making tables. And, and that's really, that's really why I, I ran. And I love this city. I, I have been referred to as a snobby upper Canadian. When my husband and I moved here 23 years ago, we had a sort of three to five year plan. And, you know, 23 years later, here we are. So we have an incredible, incredible city and an amazing potential, I believe. And I, I saw that and I wanted to be part of it. So ran at large and then four years later decided wanted to be part more of the agenda setting and in the vision around where our city could go and how we could grow the pie um, with hope and abundance. And, and really my mantra has been change the game to let the game change you. So really, really excited about the opportunities in our community right now and uh, the next four years. One of the things people say about the Insights podcast is that they do learn things, new things that they didn't know before. I'm not sure very many will have known about your Rick Perry story. So that's very interesting. Thank you for that. <laughs> so what has surprised you the most as you, about being mayor during your time as mayor? I think the overarching surprise has just been that people um, think you have a lot more power than you do. So I am one of eleven, and uh, you know every every decision that council makes, there are eleven people voting on it. So um, very much, it's about collaborating and, and creating partnerships, which I love to do. So I don't know if you've heard this on my other podcast, but I do believe that cities sort of take on the persona of the mayor over time so when brian murphy was mayor it kind of had a brash kind of a little bit arrogant sort of tone to it and it's because the mayor's the spokesperson right so i'm not going to ask you to to uh indicate where you think the city's at but i do think it is kind of don arnold city these days and and i live here and i appreciate it um you were the you were elected uh the first woman to be elected to the position of mayor in the city of moncton you recently received the 2021 Woman of Influence in Local Governor Award by Municipal World. We are seeing more and more women entering politics. The big three cities here have, have women mayors for the first time uh, uh, in the last election. Do you think we're getting close to gender equality in political leadership in New Brunswick? Well, we're definitely making headroads and it's a pretty exciting time to have all three big city mayors uh, women. Uh, but at the current rate, it will take 217 years to achieve gender parity. So I, while we're making progress, I'm not really prepared to wait 217 years. So um, we now have four of 11 members on Moncton City Council uh, women, and I'm already seeing how it's changing the conversation. You know, the more uh, our, we speak up and the more we're part of those decisions around the decision-making tables, it's, it's, progressive and it's we just bring a different flavor to it all absolutely so mark you have an interesting career arc before becoming city manager here in moncton you were uh in municipal leadership in one of the fastest growing regions in canada in the edmonton region can you tell us a little bit about your background and path back to new brunswick and moncton yeah well thank you uh david and thank you to you and uh, don for for doing these podcasts i think they're very positive for uh all leadership in Atlantic Canada and for for the country. So th thank you for doing that. Yeah, so I have, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to, to grow up in this area, you know, having uh, summer jobs in leisure services and public works. I guess you never know when, when that comes back. And I guess even, you know, just finishing university, I had applied for a um, for a position in local government as a chief administrative officer in Bactouche, I guess the hometown of the Irving family. And at 21 years old, the council gave me the opportunity to, uh, you know, to start my career there. They pretty much said you have six months probation. So the worst that can happen is we'll kind of terminate you after that time. But, um, you know, five and a half years later, it was a, a great experience. And I guess, you know, they just, put a lot of trust and confidence in someone that had a lot of energy and, you know, never estimate, I guess, youth. So after that, uh, after that five and a half years, I, I thought, well, let's, let's get some experience outside of, of the province and hopefully I'll have an opportunity to come back. So I moved to Alberta. And as you mentioned, I was uh, doing the same role that I'm doing here in a neighboring community to Edmonton which was the fifth fastest growing community in Canada at that point. 
uh, bilingual community. And, um, you know, when I, at that time in Alberta, it was just the land of opportunity. I had an opportunity to, uh, you know, work on Federation of Canadian Municipalities projects in Cambodia. So I was there a number of times. I was on the International City Manager's Board, on the uh, Canadian Administration, Municipal Administrators of Canada Board as president. So just some great opportunities there. And the, the, the bad thing is I never thought that I would come back to Atlantic Canada. I thought maybe I'll end up in Ontario, but I guess you never know when uh, opportunities arise. And for me, just the opportunity to come back to Moncton was something I, I never thought you know would be possible. And uh, it's great to be back home. And I've, time flies. I mean, I've been in this role uh, for the last four years. And, you know, I really stay motivated by comments that Don Mills made in his, uh, I guess, farewell tour in 2018 when he mentioned that, you know, we're never average. You know, in Atlantic Canada and New Brunswick, we're always below the national average, whether it's GDP population growth. And I thought I did not move back to, you know, my home province to be someone that's average. So I guess that's something that kind of drives me and uh, making sure that we're a better place for future generations and making sure that we're maximizing the potential of our city and our organization. So. I appreciate that, Mark. I, I was mentioned mentioning to you in the in the pre-discussion that the population of Beaumont has started to still growing, but the growth rate has slowed a bit after you left. And the growth rate here in the last four years has started to take off. So I think maybe you're a little bit of a good luck talisman here for the community. Before we turn to the main subject of today's conversation, I wanted to ask you about the COVID-19 pandemic. So we heard a lot about the provincial and federal governments and all the things they were doing, the billion dollars a day the federal government was pumping into the economy, for example. Uh, and of course, the province had control over a lot of the lockdowns and a lot of the, the rules uh, around the pandemic. But we didn't hear a whole lot about municipal government. So I'd, I'd like to ask you, how did the pandemic impact City Hall and the delivery of municipal services? And is there anything do you think will change coming out of COVID-19? Well, I'm pretty proud that we didn't miss any City Council meetings. We instantly adapted and uh, even public hearings, everything. And, and, you know, a lot of good learnings from that. Sometimes I think a public hearing is better online. Um, some people are very shy about coming in and presenting to council and that sort of thing. So that that was a really good win. Um, but then again, uh, I'm the chair of our pension board, and I'm happy to say that our pension board meetings go much more smoothly online. So I'm quite excited about that. I think COVID really taught us the importance of our public gathering spaces, our parks, our trails, and um, actually really told us a lot about our Coliseum too, which we kind of saw as this old building, but uh, you need that. It was our, our COVID testing site, it is now our COVID vaccination site, and just the importance of those large uh, buildings. Um, but for me, I think the biggest thing was um, the way we all work together in New Brunswick, I think the mayors, uh, all, we had sometimes weekly um, conference calls with the province and, you know, people stayed on message. They they stayed uh, true uh, to what, what we were trying to accomplish in our province. So I think we played a big uh, role in that. But um, COVID taught us about the COVID cracks too. And um, seeing the three levels of government work so closely together, particularly around something like, um, you know, affordable housing with our rising tide initiative, the fact that that would have been unheard of before, I think. I think it really, you know, coming together, seeing seeing those cracks just seemed so much more apparent during COVID. And um, I'm, really, I'm really proud of the work that, that we are doing on that right now. What about you, Mark? Did you see anything change or, or was anything extra complicated as a result of COVID-19? Oh, there was some good dialogue, I would say, uh, you know, during the pandemic. And it was not easy even comparing with my counterparts across the country. I mean, there was no playbook, right, on, on a pandemic of this nature. So I guess we all had to really adapt. And uh, I guess now moving forward, we all have these good reference documents that will be, you know, good references for future, whether it's our business continuity planning or emergency preparedness planning, considering a pandemic of this nature. So we've learned a lot through uh, through these times. 
And as Mayor Arnold mentioned, I mean, uh, I'm really happy of the entire team's leadership. I mean, we were the first major employer to bring all of our employees back at, at City Hall to really show that uh, leadership for our downtown businesses and our local community. And I hear even now that some of even my counterparts across the country are just starting to put those plans into place, you know, one year after. So uh, our team really did uh, a good job and that great collaboration with the elected officials. So I'd like to turn to the, t- to the main topic of today's discussion. We're looking to find the secret sauce. So what we interviewed the mayor of Halifax, we interviewed a former mayor of Charlottetown. We'd, we'd like to know what it is that municipalities can do to foster strong and sustainable economies. There are many influences that impact a municipality's success. Of course, there's other levels of government, provincial and federal, there's strong private sector, there's geography, natural assets, right? I mean, Moncton is the hub here in the Maritimes is one example of that. There are institutional assets like universities and colleges and and research uh, institutes and so on. But given all of these different influences, I'd like to hear from you. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Mayor uh, Arnold. Uh, what is the role of municipal government to foster a strong and sustainable economy? I think a lot of it comes from a tone from the top. You know, setting out that vision, setting out. Uh, you know, you can't you can't tell the stories about something until you can have a vision of it. So, so we've been really proactive on things like that. You know, through our um, municipal planning, and um, I, you know, open, accessible, engaged. I, I think that that's how you that's how you get people on board to to want to step up and be part of, you know, solving some of the complicated issues that are out there. I also believe so fundamentally in collaboration. And I'm really pleased that Mark and I are able to do this together today because it's it's only through working together that we're going to get anywhere. And I, I'm really proud of the work that we do as a tri-community right now, the work that we do as tri-cities with St. John and Fredericton, the eight cities, the Atlantic mayors. Um, this is really important work, I think, and, and we will only get, we'll only move forward uh, if, if we're all working together on it. Um, you, you did mention post-secondary, and, and I, I have to just say that I think we have incredible opportunities around post-secondary in our uh, community right now. And um, uh, we'll talk about immigration later, but I'm just thinking, you know, as a mom of a 17 or 18 year old uh, in Mumbai, and I want them to come to North America, why would they not come to a place like Moncton instead of Vancouver, Montreal, or Toronto, particularly when we have so many post-secondary institutions? So uh, I think that's a really great opportunity right now. And uh, what about you, Mark? Anything on that one? Yeah, and just building on some of Mayor Arnold's comments, as she mentioned, you know, being so close to uh, to the people, although, you know, we only collect 10 cents of, uh, you know, total tax dollars that people pay, like the municipal government only collects 10 cents out of each dollar. I mean, the role of local government, it's really about, as Mayor Arnold mentioned, is, you know, connecting people, establishing those relationships, working as a team, so, you know, sometimes, you know, other stakeholders don't have that capacity, but at the local level, you know, the players you can bring people together. You might not have all the resources, but there's a lot of influence that can be uh, brought forward there. And that's how, I mean, you, you build on that and that positive storytelling and really, you know, developing that can-do attitude to look at, at solutions for, for the community. So municipal government is my favorite level of government because people live in communities they live in neighborhoods they don't live in provinces or countries they do but all the things that matter 80 percent of the things that matter happen in the local community it's it's you know it's the quality of the green spaces you know the quality of the infrastructure but also healthcare and education and things that aren't in municipal control but those are all things that happen in local neighborhoods and you guys do influence a lot of those other decisions like education as well maybe not as much as we'd like but um (laughs) yeah so that's great um so i do want to turn to immigration the city of moncton was one of the first if not the first in canada to develop a specific immigration strategy at the municipal or regional level in 2014 a document that outlined the case for immigration and then the steps that would be taken by the city and its partners 
uh, Dieppe and Riverview, along with other stakeholders. The region was one of the first mid-sized urban areas to set up a local immigration partnership, and I remember that well, around the same time. A new immigration strategy, a second one, was launched in 2019, and again, I was very proud to have played a small role in the development of that strategy. What role has the immigration strategy played in Greater Moncton's recent population growth? Well, you should be speaking to this, David. You were very instrumental in all of this, but I'm, I'm really proud of the work that has been done. Um, in, in 2020, the Moncton CMA had the, the fifth best inward migration rate among the 35 CMAs in the country. So that's pretty spectacular and something to celebrate. Um, and our Greater Moncton population increased by 1.8% in 2020. It was down from the record growth rate of 2.2 in 2018-2019, um, I would say as a direct result of uh, COVID for sure. Um, but in 2020, immigration accounted for 70% of net population growth in, in the Moncton CMA. So we have really lofty goals for the for the future. And uh, I mean, this stat is no secret to you. You talk about it all the time. But in our province, we know that over the next 10 years, 100,000 people will retire out of our workforce. And during that time, only 75,000 students will graduate of which not all will stay here. So we have a huge delta um, that we have to fill. So it, it's, you know, immigration is absolutely key to growing our population and our workforce. And um, so we have stakeholders in the Greater Moncton Immigration Strategy, as you mentioned, they're doing a really great job. 40% um, of all permanent residents settling in New Brunswick in 2020, um, that, that, that's up from um, only 27% in 2017. and we actually are, are attracting more residents in Fredericton and St. John combined in 2020. Additionally, um, we, we continue to attract young families, which is so, so key. 28% of all PR admissions were under the age of 15 compared to only 14% across Ontario, for example. So this is absolutely key. Like people say to me, oh, you know, Moncton is a great place to retire. Well, I, I, we need we need people here to ensure that those people can come here and retire. So I, I'm particularly happy to to see you know the the age of the newcomers that are coming to our community. So I I wanted to ask you a little bit about investment or spending because a lot of people think immigration is a federal responsibility, and then some will say, well, it's a provincial responsibility, but immigration, as I indicated earlier, it happens in the local community. So I, I'd like to hear if you have been putting your money where you're, where you're, where the focus is here, and have you been investing directly in efforts to support immigration? And maybe Mark, you could take that. Yeah, well, thank you for that question, David. And I guess for us, uh, the answer is yes. I mean, the city has been very proactive in investing in, in immigration, even starting in 2007. And I guess it's really all about leveraging strategic partnerships and leveraging other investments. So we can think, you know, since 2007, creating the Moncton Immigration Board at that point, you know, creating the welcome guide. So some of those small initiatives that could be built over through the years. Then uh, in 2013, the city hired its first immigration strategy officer, again, to put some of these implementations in place. And in 2014, you know, we had the Greater Moncton Immigration Summit, which led to that uh, Greater Moncton Immigration Strategy that was launched in, in that 2014 year and that has been built upon now with uh, with the new immigration plan, which has been very instrumental in, in the success of what we're seeing uh, uh, at the level across the community. As well, I mean, the city has done some, some initiatives such as uh, an annual grants program for organization that support immigration uh, groups in our community. So that has been very beneficial, whether it's partnering with uh, our local universities or MAGMA, or some of those organizations. And as well, um, we've been very involved in job fairs for immigrants and newcomers. So some of that uh, in terms of statistics, you know, the city has worked with over 100 employers and filled more than four, 400 jobs, which has resulted in more than $16 million in payroll. So you can see that, you know, the economic uh, impact and just the diversity in our community is incredible. 
We see that now in Moncton. What we have not seen 10, 15 years ago, you see it, you know, when you're in our parks, in our stores, we're starting to see a critical mass, which is very exciting. And it's really positioning Moncton as an international city. So, um, you know, I've lived in the greater Edmonton area. I sometimes reflect back and say, I think I'm in that area right now in Moncton because we see that diversity uh, across our community, which is so positive. That's adding so much richness to our community in so many different ways, because it's about more than just filling jobs in the economy, too. It's about, you know, making us into that, you know, an international city and bringing the flavors and sounds and culture uh, as well. It's 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 huge. And we're and we're really seeing it in our community and people are becoming so much more aware. Um, I in the before times would have a Christmas party uh, every Christmas Eve and would bring, you know, 15 to 20 international students together with my neighbors. And uh, they would come sometimes in their their full traditional dress. And while it was great for the students, it was even greater for my neighbors to see these international students and have these fantastic conversations. And they'd come away going, wow, that was an incredible person I had the opportunity to speak with. So it's it's win-win all around. And we're we're really bullish on immigration in our community right now. Just recently met with the federal minister of immigration to make sure that he is aware of just how keen we are to, to keep uh, the numbers going and open to any kind of creative pilot projects. Yeah, it is, it is uh, very hopeful to me that the federal government now understands that there are secondary cities. It's not just about Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver anymore. And in fact, if you look at Ontario, all of the secondary cities like Kingston, let's say, or Sarnia, with some exceptions like Windsor, there's very little immigration. So my fear moving forward, or one of my fears, is that these cities are all going to want their share, Sudbury, right, uh, London, Sarnia, whatever. Uh, and just as long as there's enough left over for places like Moncton and St. John and, and uh, Charlottetown and even Bathurst, right, I think that's really what our message needs to be as cities, that, that, that immigration strategies need to roll up based on the priorities in local communities. Because if they set some number at the top, and then Toronto and others sort of take a majority share, then maybe there's not enough left over for everybody else. But I am, I am glad that you're investing in immigration because I do think one of the challenges is in successful cities, and part of the purpose of Insights here is to help city leaders across Atlanta, Canada think this stuff through. And one of the things you have to do is shift your spending priorities. So I know you've been looking more with rising tides and some of the housing challenges. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, certainly supporting immigration, but even those other quality of life issues like culture and green spaces, you know, more of the, I think this, I don't know, I haven't done a forensic audit of the city budget, but I think there's been a subtle shift. You know, you still have to do all the core services, right? Water, sewer, garbage removal, public safety, all that stuff has to happen. But increasingly you're, you're having to spend in other areas, maybe that historically you didn't spend as much in those areas. Is it hard? This is a little supplemental question, but is it hard to get council uh, in general to spend in new areas like this, like immigration? Immigration is pretty firmly established here now. And uh, I would, to your earlier point, you know, people can live anywhere today. So the, the amenities are becoming more and more important, especially, you know, active transportation. So our trail system, our parks, those seem to, those seem to be uh, doing all right. I would say councils, we have a very progressive council that, you know, wants to you know, create a sustainable uh, city for the future. So, but but you're right. I mean, affordable housing in particular was a really big challenge for, for council to go all in on that. And David, just to, to that point, and I think it's a really good question. It's because we know in Atlantic Canada, there's a lot of smaller jurisdictions, right? It's not all, you know, larger communities. And I guess for smaller jurisdictions that are listening to this and are trying to say, well, it's all good that it works in, you know, the bigger centers, like never underestimate the potential you have of leveraging small investments with other organizations, you know, partner, reach out to neighboring communities, you know, to some of your nonprofits. Sometimes you don't have to do a lot of investment to really, you know, move the needle, especially in these small communities. And there's really good opportunities, even working with, you know, some of those neighboring communities to just pool funds in or, you know, contact us right contact some of the larger centers and you know we have a lot of information that can be shared so 
we're all in this together at the end of the day. And we know if we want to have a successful mountain, we need to have a successful province and successful Atlantic Canada. So it's all about helping each other out, I guess. You talked earlier about deliberately bringing staff back to send a signal that you wanted to get the downtown, support the downtown uh, and get it back to vibrancy as soon as possible. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the downtown. I live in downtown Moncton. And when we walk around now, we're seeing a ton of apartment complexes going up. We're seeing a number of new businesses, of course, the anchored by the Avenir Center uh, and so on, new restaurants uh, and so on. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, was it part of a deliberate strategy or did it just sort of emerge or did you actually put a focus uh, on trying to get this kind of activity in the downtown? Maybe your worship, we can start with you. Well, it's absolutely been part of our, our deliberate plan. That that is for sure. Um, we um, we first launched a, a downtown vision in two thousand and six. Um, didn't quite go according to plan. There were a bunch of things that happened that weren't exactly where we wanted things to go, including you know Casino New Brunswick going mm -hmm. out to Magnetic Hill. Um, and at that time, you know, Highfield Square was was faltering, you know, the Bay left, uh, Trinity Drive became this hot retail destination. Um, the Moncton Coliseum was hosting the international events like the, the Men's World Curling Championships. And, but that really highlighted the deficiencies at our, at our Coliseum. So all of these things kind of came together and uh, we started thinking about a downtown sports and entertainment co complex to kind of spur on that downtown development. And so we, you know, we had a feasibility plan and I think you were part of that as well uh, to put this all together. And um, downtown development and revitalization really became a focus. Um, and uh, we we worked ahead with that, and and the Avenir Center has just uh, it's it's really been the impetus for so much because before the Avenir Center, Moncton was only seeing downtown building permits in the range of six to twenty million a year. But once the Avenir Center was announced, the market responded in a really significant way with thirty to forty eight million dollars per year of downtown bu building permits. So you know. It, it worked. That was that was the goal was to, to spur that on and be very intentional about that growth. And we're seeing um, a lot of residential growth in our downtown right now with uh, 452 residential units built or under construction in, in just the last four years. Um, our cumulative building permits in downtown since 2017 are 175 million. So this, this has already resulted in a $90.4 million worth of new investment as of July, 2020 in, in the downtown. Our, our goal is 108 million by 2023. And we're, we're, I, I feel very confident we're gonna reach that very soon. So um, it's happening and it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. We have uh, you know a lot of interest in, in the downtown core right now. Uh, there are cranes everywhere and um, it's 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 a pretty exciting time. I mean, there aren't many cities that have you know prime real estate in the center of the city, close to to the river that that can be developed. So, very excited about the future of our downtown density. Mark, only about five or six percent of city residents actually live downtown, and one I do a lot of work in downtowns across uh, the region and in Ontario now. And one of the concerns is that councillors that don't live in the downtown or don't have voters in the downtown tend to be um, more ambivalent about downtown development in other cities. Now we have at-large councillors, which I think helps somewhat, but do you, is there pretty broad-based support on council for downtown development or is everybody kind of looking out for their own neck of the woods? Yeah, and Mayor Arnold can speak to that as well. I mean, what, one of the items that we've done that has really been beneficial is uh, establishing, you know, a strong strategic plan with council that's reviewed on an annual basis and outlining our strategic plan are a number of initiatives related to, uh, you know, to our downtown community to making sure that continues to be a focus. So that has been something that has been supported by uh, our elected officials. So it kind of provides us a uh, clear roadmap in terms of implementation and making sure, as Mayor Arnold mentioned, with all these new developments that are being proposed and, you know, with these relationships that we have with our development community, 
to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place that can accommodate that new development. It's because as you know, downtowns in Atlantic Canada, in all of our cities, you know, some of our downtowns have been, you know, 100 years, 200 years in terms of the infra infrastructure that has been uh, included there. So now as we look to upgrade, we really want to make sure that, you know, it's sized accordingly to accommodate future development. It's because we want to make sure we maximize that momentum and, and the opportunities, I guess. But to your more political uh, question, um, I would say that uh, Council is united on seeing what the return on investment is, you know, in, a, in our downtown core. And um, eight of the 11 councillors do touch uh, downtown. So actually nine, including me. Uh, so nine of 11 members of council, their jurisdictions do, do touch on downtown. So, so that helps a lot. That's very interesting. So I'm doing work in an Ontario city right now, which doesn't have any of that. They don't have at-large councillors. And I think there's only one or one and a half that actually touch the downtown area. So that's interesting, just as a, as a thought moving forward to try and slice and dice it in a way that there's more sort of political responsibility for the downtown among councillors. That's very smart, I think. I don't know if that was deliberate or it just worked out that way. Or I think it's probably the way our city evolved, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. Um, are you a little bit concerned about the trend toward people working from home or how this could impact the downtown? A lot of downtowns are diversifying. They're moving to more, toward more residential, more events. And I know that that's really where the city's been going in recent years as well. But there's still a lot of commercial and office activity in the downtown. Uh, is, is it concerning to you, this trend toward work, for, work from home? Or do you think the downtown is going to rebound and you know, come out of the pandemic as strong as ever? Yeah, that, that's a really good question, David. And I think it's similar for a number of downtowns across North America that we've seen, you know, since the, the pandemic. So it's no different uh, in, in our community. I guess uh, what has been done here is really to bring stakeholders together. So we have a Southeast Economic Recovery Task Force, includes municipalities, chambers of commerce, our local regional economic development organization, uh, ACOA, so our federal counterparts, the province, our downtown association, and really a coordinated effort in terms of what can we do to make sure that we're all working, you know, with the same actions, same vision in terms of making sure our downtown remains vibrant. So some of the examples that they've done is really to have open dialogue with our major downtown businesses. So, you know, touching base with the CEOs, the vice presidents, really having a good understanding of where they are, what can we do in terms of supporting them to bring their employees back, sharing some of the, you know, lessons learned that organizations such as the city of Moncton we've had when we brought our, our team back. So that has been really positive to foster that, that dialogue. And uh, as it is, and I believe this is pretty much similar across North America or across the world, you have that one-third, one-third, one-third split right between people that want to come back in, that want to do hybrid or want to stay home. So it's really looking at that and making sure that we're there to, to support these, these businesses. And I mean, as you know as well, there's two thoughts right now. One is that, you know, it could have an impact on square footage in the future. So that's one thought. And the other one is that, you know, it could possibly maintain or increase to accommodate the workforce, depending on how layouts have to be in place or depending on their needs. So I guess a couple of positive aspects in terms of, of our community in Moncton is, you know, companies are still hiring and recruiting and uh, the total persons employed in, uh, in our census metropolitan area at our all time high. So right now we have, you know, as of May 2021, there is 123,000 individuals, uh, you know, people that are employed, which is, you know, approximately 8,000 more than last year. So those are positive metrics, I guess, that we can build on. Another uh, little success story, and since you live in Moncton, David, uh, you're very familiar with the Higgins block where uh, 
that and you know it's a, it's a global pandemic and it has been renovated and it's being rented and honestly if i had a dollar for every time someone said to me why don't you do something with that building you know why is it not developed it's at a very key corner in our city at botsford in maine and during the pandemic it's been renovated and and rented so that's that's pretty exciting and with some of our local uh, yeah local local entrepreneurs local developers have, yeah. have taken it on so that's a great success story during a difficult yeah. and challenging time yeah it's really great to see that in in the time of covid that that actually emerged that's a really good example i wanted to talk to you quickly a bit or ask you a little bit about this idea of a community brand so i've been around long enough to remember a time when the city did not have a particularly good brand and Barbara Frum supposedly in the 80s called it the armpit of the Maritimes. I'm not sure that that was meant to be a compliment. Um, you know, again, we're talking about other municipalities across Atlantic Canada here. Some have better brands than others. Some have no brand and they're trying to establish a brand, trying to say, you know, hey, look at us. We're a great place to live and work and move to. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you change the conversation about a municipality. How do you start or what are your thoughts around how you how you boost the city's brand and what what should cities do today to promote themselves far and wide in an era of ubiquitous social media and, and um, you know, still still the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. Oof. Well, I think I think we started a number of years ago, and I think some of the big turning points were, you know, Rolling Stones concert, U2, just taking on audacious challenges like FIFA, the IAAF, and of course, you know, building an Avenir Centre and having that vision. I think that, that those are things that, uh, you know, change people's perception. Uh, we have incredible momentum going on right now, but it... it it's about being intentional about that kind of momentum too. It's about being open for business. It's about being being there, being accessible, but it's also about inspiring people. And when I think of the young uh, millennials in our community that have started things like, you know, Taco Week, Flip Burger Festival, the Inspire Festival with murals and art all over our city. You know, they couldn't do that in really huge metropolitan areas. So the time of the mid-sized city, if is, is now, I think, and we have so much to offer. Um, I have a list of 46 reasons why Moncton is the greatest community around. <laughs> a new one that we've been talking about recently in the greater Moncton area is that we are seaside, thinking about the idea that, you know, we're 20 minutes from the ocean. Many big cities, you're, tra you're traveling a lot longer than 20 minutes to get to a beautiful beach. So I think that's something that we need to we need to talk about more. Um, but you know, the, the list goes on and on about uh, you know best you know fastest growing CMA in Atlantic Canada, best place in Canada to buy real estate, best place in Canada to do business. I mean, we've we've received a lot of those accolades, and I think it's I think it's getting out there, but it's still hard. You know, I've been on those immigration forays into Toronto, and people are like, "What is a Moncton?" You know, so how how do we how do we stand out? You're, you're right; it's challenging in this million channel universe. Mark, I remember you told me one time that you were when you went to Alberta you just thought it was such a place of optimism it was kind of a frontier and everybody had sort of a growth and positive mindset um what did you learn out there that you brought back or you think can be a, a, a adopted here in our region yeah I mean you know in be, being there in western Canada people are really positive they're really you know not shy about you know celebrating their successes really being out there when things are going well. And I still remember when, you know, I said, oh, I'm moving back to Atlantic Canada. People are like, oh, that'll be nice. You know, you're moving back home as if, you know, a lot of people have the perception that, you know, the country finishes, you know, in Ontario, right? And Atlantic Canada is kind of a nice place for, for visiting or for tourists. So I think it's really making sure that, you know, we champion our successes, we celebrate our wins, and uh, really need to be positive and not be shy about celebrating that, you know, we're on the McLean's Canada's best communities. We're number seven. I mean, that's, you know, and as Mayor Arnold mentions, you know, there's a lot of these positive messaging that sometimes, you know, Atlantic Canada, we hold back on, but we need to make sure that, you know, people are aware that, you know, there's success here. 
and that we want to build on that momentum. And, you know, we're, we're one of those, as Men, Mayor Arnold mentioned, one of those leading mid-sized cities that really has a, a global focus as well. So let's not hold back. Let's not limit our opportunities. And um, really, let's, let's keep on working together to maximize that. Thanks for that. Um, just a few more questions here, uh, because I, know I do want to keep to our timeline here. But I, the city has an, uh, another interesting and fairly unique attribute, and that's its commitment to bilingualism, specifically French and English. Uh, outside of Quebec, there are more people living in this city, in Moncton, the city, not the metro area, in the city, with French as their mother tongue than all other cities in Canada except Ottawa, Toronto, and Greater Sudbury, which, I, which surprised me. I knew there was a French community there, uh, but I didn't know it was so large. Uh, Winnipeg and Vancouver. So I guess the question for you is, what does a city do to support this commitment to bilingualism, and how do we continue to meet this commitment at a time when thousands of immigrants are going to be settling here over the next decade or two? Well, bilingualism is very, very important to Moncton. Uh, obviously, we were the first officially bilingual city in the country, so we're very dedicated to it. It's part of our unique selling proposition. And um, what I find really interesting is that it has... It has um, really grown our economy in an interesting way in that, you know, people say, oh, you have to be bilingual. Well, for every bilingual job, it creates two to three, at least, you know, Anglophone only jobs. So it's been it's been really, really important for our, our community. Um, we work with our businesses, our not for profits to, you know, really reinforce this. But what's really interesting from an immigration perspective is that it is a unique selling uh position for them as well. They're really excited about the opportunity for their children um, to be able to be educated in either French or English. Like a lot of the Francophone immigrants are choosing Anglophone schools. A lot of the non-Francophone uh, non families are putting their children into French schools. So for them, this is such an amazing opportunity to you know think about their kids being trilingual uh, from a very young age. And um, Additionally, the, the idea that we have these two cultures living so harmoniously together in our, in our community, um, it really creates a narrative that is so much more interesting and it creates a sense of place that, I, I mean, I grew up in Ontario, we sure didn't have that. And I think that by being a bilingual community and having this really uniqueness to us, it, it adds a lot of value. Yeah, for, for sure. As Mayor Arnold mentions, I mean, it's something that, again, it's uh, a good opportunity for for leadership across the country and it's kind of you feel that special unique advantage that we need to continue promoting and uh, you know making sure that we're using those same principles when we're attracting you know people from different cultures and backgrounds and really uh, you know it, it's a really good opportunity and even when you look at our immigration numbers i mean that has been really positive where we're attracting a large portion of uh, the francophone immigrants that that come into New Brunswick in uh, in our area here, which uh, provides a lot of, of opportunity and is really, uh, really beneficial in the long term as well. So I've got two more questions for you. The first one is kind of a general one. I'm just trying to find out if you have any thoughts around what else has the city done to create the conditions for a growing population and economy. I just want to make sure I haven't missed anything, things like industrial parks or arts and culture, or is there other things that you'd like to share, uh, things that the city's done that has helped support growth over the past decade? Well, uh, Moncton Industrial Development is definitely a, a huge success. I mean, the recent announcement of Walmart putting their warehouse in our industrial park is just fantastic news. I mean, they don't they don't just decide on a whim to put their their warehouse in in a place like Moncton. So that's a, it's a it's a great uh, vote of confidence in our um, community, and it being the hub of the Maritimes as well. Mark, you have some more stats, I think, on our our. Yeah. Parks. yeah, and that's a good example just in terms of our industrial parks. I mean, the assessment value is over $600 million in the industrial parks, you know, tax revenue of $14.5 million annually. 
and you can say, well, okay, what does that mean in terms of scale of your budget? That's 11% of our total tax revenue comes from our industrial parks. So that's pretty significant. And uh, it provides an opportunity to invest in other great things, whether it's, you know, environment, culture, social, you know, items that, that complement and make sure that Moncton and our area here is a great community. So it's kind of all these great investments provide opportunities to, to provide additional services that benefit everyone, I guess. Yeah. Thanks and for on, that. And on the arts and culture, I mean, that is what creates such an interesting feel to our city, whether it's, you know, the murals from the Inspire Festival, whether it's the increasing amount of public art that we have. We have a public art policy every time we build a, you know, a major building, we, we have a policy of a certain percentage of the costs going toward public art. I mean, this too builds an interesting place to live. Yeah, I, I really like the the public murals, and that that started a few years ago. And I think it's been really, it's added a lot to the culture and to the, but just to the color of the community. But I remember at the time, a friend of mine in Fredericton saying, "We don't want that graffiti here <laughs> on our buildings." And I, I've noticed in the last little while, we're starting to see these murals also popping up in Fredericton and certainly in St. John as well. So it is, I think, it does add to to the richness of culture here. So appreciate that. I think the last question. I'd like to ask you is around this municipal reform project that the province has undertaken. Um, you know, the last time we had any kind of major municipal reform, I think was, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the sixties, maybe 50 or 60 years ago or more. Um, and there's been these sort of festering challenges along the way. I have my concerns mostly around economic development and things like that, but other people, you know, concern about, 38% of the population not actually having, uh, being disenfranchised in terms of municipal voting and so on. Um, they're looking at this. They seem to be fairly serious. Again, I don't know how, how serious because of the politics of it, but as the largest municipality in New Brunswick, you must have a position on this. What would you like to see happen? And we'd appreciate it if you could share us some of your thoughts. Well, I mean, you make a really great point, David. Uh, th this is this is our time right now. We've got one crack at it, or we'll be waiting another fifty years. I'm convinced. So, you know, what a great opportunity for us to be national leaders on this. You know, our entire province only has what seven hundred sixty thousand people. I mean, we we should get this right. And um, I, I feel very. Um, happy that our provincial government is stepping up. They've made it a priority. They have a minister whose job is title even has local governance reform in it. So um, it's it's very exciting. We certainly had lots and lots of meetings on it. Um, but, you know, we're obviously anxious to make sure that as a urban centre, it's not one size fits all either. You know, we, we have we are the economic generator of the province. We need to ensure that we can continue to be that. So um, we need we need long term sustainability. It's we need wise choices right now, and it's just such a unique opportunity uh, to get things right for future generations. So uh, obviously, we uh, we're we're concerned about things like double taxation. Uh, we uh, we want to make sure that you know we're. It benefits cities for sure, um, but we're really hopeful that you know we can do better. When you think about right now in um, New Brunswick, we have 654 elected officials at the municipal level, and as you said, 38% don't even have elected representation. So um, the city of Toronto has 2.7 million people and is represented by 25. So at that ratio, all of New Brunswick could be represented by seven people. So, you know, we got to get over ourselves. We got to do better. We got to find the efficiencies. And um, ultimately, uh, in order to do what we need done, uh, maybe city charters should be part of it. You know, maybe maybe we're not going to be exactly the same as Nigawak, you know. So um, I, I really look forward to, you know, the white paper and, you know, continuing uh, discussion on it. Some really positive things, though, that I am seeing that are um, kind of coming to the service are things like a provincial approach to inclusionary zoning, which I think would be fantastic. Yeah, and as Mayor Arnold mentions, you know, let's really maximize this opportunity for our future generations. And as you mentioned, David, these opportunities don't come up, you know, on a regular basis. So let's really, you know, look 
to moving this forward. And as, as the premier always says, let's look at new ways of doing things. Well, this is a great opportunity. And, you know, we have the size of the province where this can be done and it can be implemented. We're not dealing with, you know, larger communities or, you know, items where it's, there's so many barriers. So let's really, you know, maximize that opportunity and give the communities that have that capacity, you know, some of those, those powers where, where we've seen that in some of those other jurisdictions across the country, whether it's, you know, the Halifax or Toronto's or Calgary's Edmonton. So really let's look at how we can maximize the opportunities for, uh, for communities of, of all sizes. So I haven't actually thought about the city charter idea, your worship. I think that's a really interesting one to pursue. I know it's done in other jurisdictions, so maybe we need to to do that here as one way to address this issue that not all uh, cities are created the same. Uh, so that might make sense. So listen, I really appreciate you coming on Insights today. This has been a very, very uh, helpful conversation, and I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from uh, from the insights that you've provided us today. So thank you very much. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.